Coming up in this podcast, Lithium Challenges, ECM Update, Tim Roberts, Subiaco East Redevelopment, Legal Merger, Fogarty Foundation, New State Policies, Waste to Energy, and our special report on power infrastructure. Welcome to Mark My Words, the weekly podcast from Business News, with Mark Pownall and Mark Beyer discussing the important business news and data stories from Western Australia. Welcome to our weekly podcast and welcome Mark Beyer. Mark, has the lithium bubble well and truly burst? Uh, a lot of news this week on lithium and it adds to a theme that we've been talking about over the last month or so where the big fall in lithium prices um, and, and the softening of demand has had a real impact on industry in Western Australia. Um, there were several developments. Uh, Pilbara Minerals, um, one of the relatively early movers in this space, they've got their Pilgangura project. They were trying to sell up to 49% of that, um, following the lead of uh, Chris Ellison's company Mineral Resources that did something similar a few months ago. Pilbara Minerals came out and said the offers just weren't attractive. They could not sell uh, the equity in their project that they'd been hoping to. Off the back of that, they've scaled back their production and expansion plans, uh, tailoring it to the market. Um, Even more dramatic news, um, Alita Resources, they've got the Bald Hill Mine um, south of Cambelda. Um, That's a name, it's not a brand that people are familiar with because it was a a merger of Tawana and Alliance um, not all that long ago. Mm -hmm. But look, there's a company, they took on a big bunch of debt to develop their project. Um, Their Offtake partners didn't take as much as they'd been hoping. Prices fell, couldn't service their debt, gone into receivership. Um, Galaxy Resources, which has its mine not far away from Bald Hill, they've actually bought the debt. They appointed the receivers. So I guess they're taking a long view that there's a, an asset they'll probably try and get their hands on as well. Um, Galaxy actually announced a big loss. They'd had some big write-downs. Um, but they're strong enough to withstand that. Yep. Um, and then the other news, um, Talus and Lithium, they've got the big green bushes mine. Um, they announced last year um, they've had a, one big expansion that they've already com- just completed, and they, they had announced an, a further expansion on top of that. Um, they've now come to the market and said, well, we're just having a rethink gotcha. about when we might do that. So um, this, this broad theme that there's been a lot of investment in this space, the supply of um, lithium concentrate, um, also called spodumene concentrate, um, has gone through the roof. Prices have collapsed. Um, it's a classic commodity, um, dramatic commodity cycle. Yeah. So we expect um, that after this shakeout in the market um, and, and customers start going back in and buying more, Um, the prices will kick up again. But, gee, like any commodity, hard to predict the future. Yeah, no, it's remarkable. And, you know, we've probably said that many times with the variations in pricing and the the outcomes that creates. Um, Now, somewhat lithium-related, we we broke the failure of ECM contractor last week. Uh, There's a bit of good news around this story this week? Is there that the is, right yes. Word? Matt, Matt McKenzie's had an update. Um, so look, ECNM, they're a very well-established um, privately owned contractor here in WA, been running for a bit over 30 years. Um, once again, on the lithium theme, you know, their their biggest contract was at the Tianchi 
lithium refinery down at Quinana. Yeah. Um, they evidently ran into issues there and uh, and went into administration about a week ago. About 400 people got laid off. The good news is that about 160 of them um, have either returned to work or are about to. So ECNM is back on site at Tianchi, right. so still working there. Um, they're back on site with CBH Group, uh, doing some work there with their grain handling infrastructure. Um, they've also got contracts with Alcoa and Citic Pacific, um, and they're in the process of getting back on site with them. So still unclear where the business will head, mm. but a good example of how by going into administration, it's not, it's not all over for the business. It's, it's a step in helping to restructure and hopefully keep the business alive. Yep. Um, and, and the administrators have, um, I mean, this is the way the system's meant to work. Um, the directors are uncomfortable about continuing to trade um, and the liability they might expose themselves to, but by appointing a voluntary administrator, you know, the business can keep on going. Um, and hopefully, ECNM will come out the other side of this as a, uh, an operational business with the future. Yeah, well, we look forward to seeing that. And uh, but it, it's interesting, isn't it, that well, at least some people have some work back and uh, and jobs, and that's that's good thing to see. Good things to hear. Um, now, many listeners will know the the multiplex name and be aware of the Roberts family that was behind it. Uh, these days, Tim Roberts is some distance from the construction game. Uh, he's a high flyer, so to speak, in the aviation business. Now, what's been happening there, Mark? <laughs> uh, well, look. Once again, courtesy of a Supreme Court um, matter, uh, we've got a lot of insight into Tim Roberts' business activities. Um, he sued Clayton Utes um, over uh, negligent advice. Um, and this is a matter with some eye-popping numbers. Um, so Tim Roberts, uh, he, he heads up the Warburton Group. That's his private sort of investment vehicle. Um, and within Warburton Group, he's got an aviation leasing business uh, called Avwest. Um, well, it's sort of leasing and broking. Yeah. Um, and it's been a remarkably uh, busy business. Um, he has an arrangement with a Canadian manufacturer, Bombardier. They're sort of a you know, big global aircraft manufacturer. Um, it's a relationship that Justice John Vaughan described as highly lucrative yeah, right. for Tim Roberts' company. Um, and we're talking corporate jets here, aren't we, just to be clear? We are, yes. Um, over about five years to 2014, um, Avwest um, purchased about 50 aircraft from Bombardier, um, which they then on-sold. Um, the notional purchase price was about $2.1 billion US. Mm. So um, amazing turnover. And very tidy profits, about 170 million US out of those transactions. Yeah, right. Uh, the matter came to court because there was one aircraft that he bought for um, 31 million US. Big numbers here. Mm. Um, it's a reflection on how much money the Roberts family took out of the sale of Multiplex. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they've got that kind of capital to, to invest. It's amazing. So Avwest was planning to purchase this particular aircraft, and it needed a major refurbishment. So they went along to their uh, their law firm, Clayton Utes, which was on a retainer, and said, run your eye over these uh, contract details and check everything's okay. So some solicitors at Clayton Utes, I mean, this was way back in 2010, spent 42 minutes 
looking at it, and they billed AvWest a total of $1,100. Off the back of that very brief and small amount of work, they got sued for $36 million US. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. so next time a lawyer yeah, says, a oh, look, this is just a quick little job, <laughs> you know, give it a quick run over, um, they might need to be a little bit more thorough. Yeah. Um, Look, ultimately, um, Justice Vaughan found that, that Clayton Utes had been negligent in their advice. There was a fire. Just remind me, there was a oh, fire in the cabin yes. during the refurbishment. Is that The right? refurbishment was happening in the US. Um, there was a fire. The aircraft was badly damaged. Um, and it turned out that um, the, the people that were doing the refurbishment work were not liable. No. Uh, because of the, the clauses in that agreement. Yep. Um, hence the, 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 the nub of the legal dispute. Um, and yes, Justice Vaughan found that um, they had been negligent in their advice. Um, he's evidently quite a fan of um, John Roberts, sorry, Tim Roberts as a business person, who's in, in evidently learnt a lot from his dad, his late father, John Roberts, a particularly astute and shrewd business person, with some of the uh, descriptions in here. And to illustrate that point, uh, Avwest has already had a big payout from the insurance company, about thirty million US. Mm. They've already had a big payout from the company doing the refurbishment, another five million US. Now going after the law firm for thirty-six million US. Right. Um, just remind me, what did they get out of the law firm in the end? Eight hundred thousand dollars. Right. Well, so somewhat less, but nevertheless, <laughs> a lot more than what they what they charged at yes. the time. Um, so, look, I've described it as a, a pyrrhic victory for Tim Roberts' company. Mm. Um, he didn't get all the money he was after. Um, I think he's still doing okay. Yes. Lives in Queenstown these days. Oh, is that right? Um, that's his, his stated residence. Mm. Um, so, interesting business and interesting insights. Because often, you know, people in that situation, you know, the family business gets sold and people walk away with a, a lot of money sitting in their bank account. And we don't always see, get much insight. No. into what happens afterwards. No, and you don't hear it so much of the, that second generation going off in a completely different business and clearly making a lot of money. Um, and then again, we might not have ever heard of this except there's been this less legal case and a previous one between, uh, well, I presume it was Avwest and Bombardier um, over, over some of the original deal that was made. So, uh, mm, interesting. Now, um, bring, it, bring us back down to earth. Uh, the demolition of Subiaco Oval is going ahead. Now, what else is happening in that eastern end of Subiaco, that precinct around there? There's quite a bit happening. Well, in fact, I drove past Subiaco Oval for the first time about a week ago and was quite struck by the uh, the sight of all the concrete stands being torn down. Yeah. Um, it, it's quite a sight to see. So the state government has committed to um, a very substantial investment in the redevelopment of that whole area. So it's the the football oval, but also the Princess Margaret Hospital site, yeah. just a little bit further up Roberts Road. Um, they're seeing about 2,000 residential developments going into those two areas. Mm. Um, clearly, it'll be sort of medium to higher density. Um, you know, fantastic opportunity for sort of infill um, in an attractive inner city location. Yeah. Um, it dovetails quite neatly with the issues confronting the city of Subiaco because obviously they have many residents um, in the leafy streets of Subiaco who are virulently opposed to um, any 
sort of density, higher density development. Yep. So, you know, within the footprint of the city of Subiaco, they can now get lots of apartments, lots of higher density, um, without touching the leafy streets um, with the, uh, you know, those nice character homes. Yeah, gotcha. So, you know, big opportunity. Um, the government's committed to spend about $220 million on land acquisition and then demolition of the hospital site. I mean, that'll be a big project in itself. Um, and then inviting private developers to come in. Um, and worth noting, you know, there's already been, um, there's been a few very encouraging developments recently. Um, Blackburn has put out plans for their Pavilion Markets development site, yep. um, high-rise apartments there. Um, Edge Visionary Living, um, another active apartment developer in Perth, they've got their um, a project underway. Um, and Cedar Woods Properties have bought the old Subiaco TAFE site on Salvado Road. Yeah, okay. So, you know, there's a, a fair bit going on. There is. Um, but there'll be a lot more coming up. Yeah, so. no, no, interesting. And, uh, you know, I think I think a lot, a lot of uh, apartment construction in Perth kind of stopped um, a couple of years ago. So I think there's probably a little bit of latent demand that these, these firms are now trying to pick up on. Um... Boutique law firm Bellenhouse has agreed to merge with a, a national group. Uh, what do we know about that, Mark? Look, we've tracked uh, Bellenhouse through our, our regular surveying of the corporate finance market. Um, and we look at who all the, the stockbrokers and the, the advisors and the lawyers are active in that space. Um, they've been a great little success story. Um, they only started about six years ago. Um, and they've got a really strong profile amongst sort of the junior mining and exploration companies, um, the listed companies. They advise on lots of capital raisings and, and quite a few takeover deals as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that group, led by Bryn Hardcastle, they've decided to merge with HWL Ebsworth. They're a, um, in fact, they claim to be the largest um, law partnership in Australia. Right. Um, they've got a you know, a, a very strong profile on the East Coast as sort of a, a commercial law firm. Um, tends not to be the top-end corporate stuff, yep. but, but across sort of the, the commercial market. Um, that firm came into WA about five or six years ago when they took over the old Downings Legal, a, um, a venerable old name in law in Perth. Um, so putting the two together, Ebsworth and Bellinhouse, they become the number six law firm in Perth, hmm. um, according to our BNIQ database. Um, they'll be just below King and Wood Mallisons and just above Lavin. Yeah, right. So um, a significant, if you like, you know, re-ranking of the, the who's who in the legal market in yeah, Perth. Yeah, 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 right. Um, and I think just a nice story as well that, uh, that Bryn and his team at Bellinhouse sort of spotted an opportunity in, in servicing that, that junior mining sector. Yeah. Um, Steiner Price Paganin is the firm that's, that's sort of dominated that space. Um, and Bellinhouse sort of came in and, and muscled in and took a big chunk of market share um, out of that. So, um, and, and Mark, I guess, you know, just to dwell on the history of law firms in the last 10 to 15 years, this is a very belated action by that group to come into to WA uh, to this large degree. We saw a lot of that in the boom, didn't we? We saw, we saw a lot of uh, international firms appearing here yep. as part of their 
kind of strategy to take over Australian firms. Uh, and we've seen a number of East Coast firms expand over here. Very much so. Yeah, look, that was a big theme. I think initially it was the international firms that were coming in. Yeah. Um, and then over that sort of four to six years, or three to six years ago, um, a lot of the the big East Coast players in that commercial market, if you like, sort of the mid-tier law firms, mm. um, also made their move into this into Perth. Um, you know, a lot of it was driven by clients who said, look, we want you to have a national footprint. Um, um, a lot of them have a, a core in sort of insurance where they need that national presence. Yep. Um, but others like Ebsworth, um, you know, they've just got a, a broad-based commercial law practice and, and they saw opportunities here as well. Um, just to fully service their clients on a national basis. Yeah, yeah. No, interesting. All right. I like to watch how markets change over time. Um, now, Mark, the Fogarty, found, uh, Fogarty family has announced a $15 million commitment to funding tech-focused entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah. What's, what's your initial read on this? Yeah, well, look, I've watched with for quite some time how the Fogarty Foundation has been a very active uh, philanthropic supporter particularly in the education space. Um, obviously, Brittany Fogarty made uh, very tidy money when he sold out of GRD um, and the old Minproc business, I think, quite a few years ago. Um, and his wife, Annie, has sort of been uh, leading this organisation. Um, I know they've been partnering with UWA for a long period. They've provided scholarships to um, up-and-coming students. Mm. Um, and they've just been very consistently doing that over um, quite a few years. Um, so this seems to be a, an expansion of, uh, of their activities. Yeah, look, I, I, you know, I guess I've watched them closely too and they were one of the very early, you know, groups to, to really commit to philanthropy before it sort of became a... Before the, the tall poppy syndrome that used to be here around philanthropy was sort of knocked on its head and we, and we got, you know, sort of 10 years ago we started to see more and more successful people put their hand up and say, yes, I've got money and I'm giving some of it away. The Fogarty's have already been doing that. Um, there's focus on education. So they're, they're, the Fogarty Foundation is actually just about 20 years old now, I think now. So, um, you know, that's quite, quite a head start on a lot of others. They're not the biggest in town. They're, I think they're around the, in the sort of 26th or so in terms of how much money they give away each year. But for, you know, but that, as a family group, that's, they're still pretty big. Um, and this is a really interesting initiative because basically they've got all these scholars and they've got dozens and dozens of past scholars and a whole bunch of new ones they're funding. And I think they've decided that obviously there's a threat here that you get people a great education, but a lot of them want to go east or overseas to, to you know, make, make good their ambitions. They're trying to hold them here and I think part of that is investing in businesses. So they're going to provide capital yes. to help... Their, their their graduates, their scholars, correct, start and up I, a business. And I don't think they, I, you know, look, forgive me if I didn't read this right, but it, it, they didn't specifically say that the, the graduate ha- or the, the scholar had to be starting up a business, but I think they had to be associated with something. So there's a, and, and they've got, of course, Brettney, Brett has got a, his own capital investment firm, Third Wave Capital. So um, they're going to be using that as the assessment vehicle for where they put the money. So I suspect they'll okay, hey, this is a good idea, and they may actually want to, you know, they'll be funding it. I don't know if it's equity funding or, or I suspect it will be anyway. So pretty, pretty interesting, I think. 
it's interesting or timely in a way because there's there's we regularly see reports about how the Western Australian economy needs to be more diversified. Um, and in fact, just in, in the last week, the, the Bank West Curtin Economic Centre put out a report um, saying exactly that. Very few of these reports sort of get down to the specifics about, well, OK, how are we going to get there? Yeah. Well, here's a great little example. It is. It's of just someone putting their hand up and saying, well, we're going to put money into new businesses. Yep, we've found a pathway. And I think yeah. it's really, you know, and we're going to we're going to select some scholars, and then we're going to invest in them, you know, and we're going to keep them here by backing them. It's really, really quite fascinating, I think. Um, now, Mark, the state government has launched a host of new policies, all with a sort of backdrop of a seemingly fractious state conference. Where do you think the state uh, Labor government is at? Yeah, look, the last week I think gives us a really fascinating insight into. Um, the priorities and the challenges facing the McGowan government. So last weekend was WA Labor's state conference and all the headlines were made for the very wrong reasons. Um, About half the delegates walked out of the conference, both on the Saturday morning and the Sunday afternoon. So it revealed or just highlighted um, the big factional divide within WA Labor um, there's this sort of one grouping, you know, the broad left, um, which is aligned with the United Voice Union, the old miscellaneous workers' union. They've been the dominant sort of factional grouping in WA Labor for a long time. Um, basically, lots of other unions that are outside that group have got into bed together and called themselves progressive Labor. So you've got some, like the transport workers, which used to be on the right, Then you've got the the militant industrial unions like the Maritime Union and the Construction Union on the left. So there's these two groupings, sort of butting heads. Um, And I guess the most um, visual, visually striking image out of it was um, Christy Kane from the Maritime Union up on stage, you know, berating all the delegates there. Um, A particular sore point for him is around planning for an outer harbour because mm. uh, he sees that you know if they shift away from the existing harbour operations at Fremantle and move to something new down at Coburn Sound, he sees that as a threat to his industrial base mm. at the existing harbour at Fremantle. Yeah, right. So he's sort of fiercely opposed to that. Don't worry about the future of the state. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> um, and then, of course, on the Sunday, um, Anthony Albanese, new national leader of the Labor Party came over and gave a keynote address. Um, There was a standing ovation at the end, but a lot of people did not stand for it, including all the people from the construction union. What's got them upset is that Albo's trying to kick out John Setka, who's the bloke that leads the construction union in Melbourne. So, you know, there's all these sort of um, underlying tensions there. Um, Now, ironically, the big announcement Mark McGowan had was that the state government would be proceeding with industrial manslaughter legislation. Yep. Now, the construction union has been a big advocate for that. Um, so despite opposition from business groups who say, look, we really don't think this is the right way to go and actually won't help to improve workplace safety, uh, the government has gone down that path, um, along with several other state governments. Um, you know, I think primarily as something that's going to appease union pressure. Yep and perhaps community people who think it's going to make a difference. Um, I remain to be convinced that it will. Um, the other one was Dave Kelly, the, the water minister. Um, 
he announced that Water Corporation has outsourced a lot of their maintenance work. So Programmed, for instance, has a big contract at the moment to do maintenance work in Metro Perth. Um, he said, well, we're going to take that back in-house. Mm. Um, so they'll become public servants doing the work, who I suspect will therefore become union members when they're once again employed by government. Yeah. So, you know, some, some insights there. And yet later in the week, we had a couple of other things that I thought were, were much more encouraging. Um, Bill Johnson announced the government's policy on um, greenhouse gas emissions. And surprisingly said that the McGowan government would align itself with the federal government policy. Um, so basically there's a, a split there between WA Labor and federal Labor. Yeah. Um, so they've, they've aligned themselves with the, the um, Scott Morrison's government, that there's going to be a, a 28% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030, and then there's this aspirational goal of um, being carbon neutral by 2050. Yeah, got it. Now, people like uh, Peter Coleman at Woodside came out and said, great to hear. You know, there's an alignment across the two layers of government, um, and he's, he's comfortable with sort of the, the direction that's been set here. Um, the other one was on Friday, uh, Peter Tinley um, announced a Asian engagement strategy. Um, he used uh, BDO, had their Asia-Pacific conference in Perth, um, and Peter Tinley outlined a, a range of activities and, and strategies to, I guess, build WA's engagement with Asia. So, you know, how do I sum up all that? Um, we've got a state government that's um, dealing with um, big factional splits and pressure from the union movement, um, but also seeking to build constructive relationships with the business community. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and broadly doing that in a fairly successful way, um, but with some tensions there um, in its party base. Yeah, I get it. And uh, I guess, you know, maybe, who knows where the timing of... I, I, think the, I think the Asian engagement stuff was definitely in the diary for quite some time. I'm not sure about the carbon policy stuff, but perhaps, <clears throat> you know, get a bit of bad news at the weekend, you want to get some good news out later on. Um, now, Mark, our uh, construction of Perth's second waste-to-energy plant is scheduled to start later this year. Um, yeah. Look, this is something we've been following for a long while. Uh, there's been a couple of groups who've been working for, gee, I think at least a decade on trying to get these projects up and running. Um, now, Perth, like you know, many places around the world, has a big issue um, we produce lots of waste, and about half of it currently goes into landfill, yeah. um, and the rest of it gets sort of recycled and reused and so on. And as a nation, we've been sending a lot of waste offshore to uh, to China and, and India and other places to deal with. Some businesses have said, why don't we follow the lead of a lot of countries in the Northern Hemisphere and actually use that waste as a fuel source for a new power station. Um, there are many of these waste-to-energy plants um, around the world. Um, and quite extraordinarily, um, Perth has become a, the leader um, in Australia. We've hmm. already got one under construction at Quinana. Um, that's a project that's being backed by um, Macquarie Capital um, and some other investors. Uh, that's being built at a cost of about $700 million dollars. So these are very substantial investments. Yeah. Um, 
and generate hundreds of construction jobs. So, you know, good news. And now there's a second group. Um, so the local partner is New Energy Corporation. That's chaired by Enzo Galotti, so well-known in the local business community. Um, they've partnered with a big international technology firm and a big international investment group. Um, they're going to spend about $450 million. Um, they've just hired, their, or sorry, signed up their engineering and construction contractor, um, Asiona. Um, and so they're planning to get underway with their construction um, in the December quarter of this year. Okay. So, um, you know, people often ask, you know, where's the future investment going to come from and where are the future jobs going to come from? We can't always predict that. And who would have predicted that Perth would become a national leader in building these very big waste-to-energy plants. Yeah, it is surprising and yeah. uh, and good to hear. And it, and the timing's good too. And look, uh, you know, on the subject of energy, uh, our special report is on uh, power and energy. Uh, what has Matt McKenzie found there? Well, look, that the, uh, the waste-to-energy projects tie in with Matt's feature because he's had a look at the amount of investment in that space. Um, about $2 billion dollars being spent at the moment mm. on big power projects, um, primarily either wind farms or solar farms or these two waste-to-energy facilities. Um, I guess the, the big theme there is that while there's been this big investment in renewables, um, then the traditional power stations, like Collie with the coal-fired power, yeah. is getting shut down. That creates all sorts of issues around management of the network and sort of fluctuating sort of loads and so on. Um, so Matt's had a good look at a lot of the regulatory issues around that, um, you know, and growth of rooftop solar. Yeah, right. it, it never makes the the list as a as a big project because it's so dispersed by nature. But yes. collectively, that's having a really profound impact on the uh, on the energy and the power market. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I mean, um, it's been a huge investment. And you get tens of thousands of households yeah. putting solar power on the roof. Yeah. Big changes. Subsidised by the state government, uh, you know, like it's quite quite significant. All right, well, I look forward to reading all that detail. Thanks, Mark. Uh, have you seen our new network charts? Subscribers to our website now have a new tool to help them use our data. We have new network charts that help the reader visualise the connections between different people and companies in our BNIQ search engine. Go to www.businessnews.com.au and check in if you're a subscriber. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Mark My Words with Mark Powell and Mark Bayer from Business News. For more information, please go to businessnews.com.au forward slash podcasts. And to receive these regularly, search for Business News WA in iTunes or SoundCloud.